Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Your dog is what you become together. You know, on switch, off switch. Listen, when the dog's in the house, it's time for the switch to be on. It's time to be a house dog. When the dog's in the kennel, it's time for kennel behavior. I don't like dogs barking and jumping and yelping. And I work on that through the Smith method with the chain gang and the wonder lead and the check cord. You know, I like quiet dogs. They're quiet in the truck and the crates. They're quiet in the kennel. Why does it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood grain on your stock head on over to uplandguncompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this week is my good buddy, Rick Afuso. Rick, how you doing? Good morning, Nick. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Man, I'm living the dream as always, as you know. But uh, man, we're I'm excited. We're gonna we're gonna break down the Britneys, a, a breed that you are all too familiar with, and something that's really kind of, uh, I don't know, been the the spark or the interest in your life for quite some time. But go ahead, and for those that don't aren't familiar with you or haven't heard of you, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell everybody where you're calling from and. And what brought you to the world of Britney's? So, Rick Afuso, I'm from New York. I'm uh, in the mid-Hudson Valley, a little town called Marlboro on the Hudson. Uh, I've had Britney's, oh my, about 50 plus years now. My dad got our first Britney, and I've had a love for him my whole life. I don't know that there's been more than a year that I've been without one. Uh, I took to full-time training and hunting with him. About in the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, I was big game hunting, uh, rifle, bow, 
my concentration was on that more than the dogs and the training. I mean, I was hunting, but local preserves, my training was limited and rough at best. Mm. And now it's just pretty much everything I do is with the dogs. I have four Britneys right now, uh, litter pups bred by my male spruce was just born today. So I should be getting my fifth in August and I'm hoping to get a male. Yep. And the party starts all over again, huh? It's going to start right from scratch. <laughs> uh, my youngest is just three this past week. And right now her training is for the Navi utility test. Gotcha. About typically, do you have like a, a set time or gap in between each puppies that you subscribe to? Or do you just kind of, when when you get the urge to get another dog, you just go get one? Yeah, so pretty much everything with these dogs was never a real master plan. It just kind of evolved and took its course. Um, the real serious training with nah, the, any real format of training started with my dog, Cody. Uh, he's going about three, four years now. But Cody was my first, the first dog I took to a Smith seminar. And that was with Rick down at Lion Country. And he was about three to four years old when I started doing that. And it really started coming together for me. And since then, about 14, 15 years later, I've been to like 40 Smith seminars between <laughs> Rick and Ronnie. And uh, I just, you know, they became pretty good friends. And it's just all about learning and handling a dog more efficiently and making it better for the dog. And you as the owner handler, whether you're hunting, testing, guiding, which I do travel the country hunting a bit uh but you know testing just kind of keeps you involved with it kind of sets your goals and i'm certainly more a hunter and a guide than i am a tester but it's, right. it's a great organization navda and you know great friends hunting friends training friends and uh i have three vcs i guess i don't know if there's a good time to mention that so in 2014 i took cody and oak Oak was a dog I got off of Ronnie Smith, which started my relationship there with him and Susanna. Oak passed that year. Cody didn't, but it was really a great run. He actually had a better run than Oak. He just had a one slip up more than she did. I bred them that following winter, had 10 pups, ended up with two. That's Spruce and Maggie. Uh, took them to the Invitational in 2019, passed them both back-to-back -back days. And in between, you know, it's just training, hunting, guiding. I guide at local hunting preserves. You know, we're just about two hours from Manhattan. So you'd get a clientele out of, you know, Westchester County, New York City, in the local preserves. Um, guide down south at Mossy Pond Lodge. Hunt around the country, you know, rough grouse are a passion. I guide upstate New York for a buddy, Rick Watson. And uh, just anything with the dogs i'm semi-retired now so i'm doing something with dogs some part of it every day man i think you need to find some new hobbies man i don't think you stay busy enough <laughs> <laughs> and i'm still working I'm, I'm plumber by trade so i still do a little bit of that when the phone rings and you know it's it's just i mean we met what about a month ago and we i watched your podcast and i watched them listen to them and yeah i just just keep going the dogs keep me going yeah keeps you on track kind of like what you're talking about on the testing it kind of gives you a something to strive for or, or map out or or a goal yeah, it's, or it's a destination a yeah 
So let me ask you, you know, you said that you've been involved in Britney's for 50 plus years. In the past 15 years, you've been gone up to, what was it, 40-something Smith seminars uh, in yes, the past between, 15 years? Between Rick and Ronnie. I think some listeners that haven't maybe attended one of the seminars might hear that and they're like, well, what, what is there to learn from these seminars that warrants going to that many seminars over a course of 10 to 15 years. And I think, you know, something that you kind of, you told me before I came up to New York and then I saw it in firsthand where there's really no two Smith seminars alike. You know, they, they have the principles and the guiding light, but every seminar is going to have a different group of people, different group of dogs and different challenges that they're going to use to show you how to train your dog. So I think people wondering about that is, have you have you noticed any of these seminars, if you've been to 40 of them, have really one reflected another one similar, or have they all been drastically different? No, I, I would say they're similar because the basic foundation is what it is. It's a foundation. But people, everyone's different. The dogs are different. Every dog, every seminar, every dog at every seminar – you know, you, you find new personalities in a dog, what a dog is doing, how they're acting. And then you get to see Rick Smith, Ronnie Smith, uh, the hosts of the seminars. A lot of them are dog trainers, pretty good ones. Actually, all of them are really. And you really just get to see firsthand what can happen with a dog. And it's all about improving a dog. It's mm -hmm. a solid system. It works. It's not complicated. Um, dogs are dogs, but every dog has a different personality. Right. And, you know, a lot of what, it, when a dog comes to a seminar, a lot of what it has was basically between them and their owner. You know, if you get dogs that are, you know, year and a half, two, three, four years old or older, those dogs now have a personality. Habits are formed. The owners have a, created a life with the dog. You know, their personalities may reflect each other. Right. But there's never a seminar that I don't leave saying, man, that, that's going to help, you know, just keep adding tools to the toolbox. Anything I could do to better train a dog, work with a dog, handle a dog um, for efficiency, easier on the dog, easier on me as a handler owner. So, you know, you you talk about you've been in Britney's for 50 years or so, and then in the past 15 years, you've really been trying to learn and grow within the Smith Method. What were you doing prior to the Smith Method that, that I guess, motivated you or brought you to the Smith Method to where it obviously just makes sense to you? You're fully bought in, and that's how you train your dogs now. What were you doing prior to that? That's a good question. Reading books, watching videos, uh, friends who had dogs, how they trained, local pro trainers. And it, what, I, what I did learn was the local knob. Knob is a great place to meet people, train dogs, learn the testing. Uh, a great part of this dog stuff, I'm going to get off track a little bit, is the people you meet. I mean, I've created friends all over the country. And, you know, especially with social media, I, I keep in touch with people you know, weekly. Right. And most of it is just all about the dogs. But I was just winging it, you know, old school stuff. I mean, when I was a kid, when we 
got our first Brittany. I hatched quail out of a, you know, incubator, brooded them, I had pheasant chicks, you know, thinking we could train dogs and it was rough. But I mean, if you can't commit the time, it's, it's going to be difficult. And that's, you know, growing up with a family, full-time job, full-time business, you know, you put what time you could in. Right. And most of that time, not knowing much, it wasn't efficient. And you spend a lot of time going backwards with a dog, even not knowing or understanding it. Right. And the dogs are so forgiving. <laughs> Pro- probably more than what we deserve, to be honest, a lot of the times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, was there any one particular method or trainer that you, you really kind of gave a fair shake for a while? One that, you know, maybe it worked, but obviously there were just certain key things missing that when you first kind of went into the Smith method that caused that to click so much for you. I would say until I went to my first seminar with Rick, there was no method. There was no system. I was, you know, you hear somebody, you work with somebody, whether it's at an odd, the training day or the guy down the road's got a dog, uh, you know, the basic stuff, but everybody wants to put a dog on birds before you really have a foundation, mm-hmm. a good training foundation. And that's, that's what I learned most from King and Ronnie. And, you know, you just really show that dog what you want and birds are not really a place to train dogs. Yeah. You need that heel, the, the woe, the recall here, come the heel. And you really do need that away from birds. It happens in training away from birds. But I, I did. I really didn't have a method. That's what was great about the Smith method is it was a method. And I knew I needed to, I just felt the urge to know more and learn more. Right. No, and I mean, it, it makes all the sense in the world. You need that foundation before getting onto birds because if you just go, you know, there's there's a saying in the in the gun dog world, you know, birds make a bird dog. And and there there is, just like everything, every saying, there is an element of truth to that, but it's lacking context because if you just go put a dog down with a bunch of birds and you're trying to train that dog when it's on level 10 of its drive because it's interacting with a wild, with a bird, uh, you know, you're, <laughs> I'm not going to say that you can't train a dog at that high level of stimulus, but you're just kind of banging your head against the wall. There's, there's much easier and proven ways to doing it now. Yeah, and I, I know the Smith method isn't the only way out there. It's pretty much the way I know and, and what interested me and, drew me the most, but it's a balance with the dogs. Yeah. It's a true balance. But if you're going to train a pup, whether it's casually for your own weekend hunting, or you want to travel and hunt various birds, wild birds, you really do need some type of system or method. And you need to really understand and know what you're going to do from step to step. The dog's talking to you all the way, all the way through it. The dog's saying something and it's body language, it's posture. And that's, Probably what I, I've gotten out of this most was just watch the dog. You know, they're talking. They really are talking every step, every movement, ears down, tail down, tail up, shoulders. Slump. It's always something they're saying. Yeah. They're telling and, you everything that you need to know right in front of you. If you know how to look or, or how to interpret what they're actually telling you. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's every, you know, there's always a step that you can do to help a dog. Right. Well, 
with I, I, there's very few chances for me to talk to somebody that's been heavily involved with a specific breed, just one breed, such as yourself that you've been involved with the Britneys for 50 plus years. You know, you can't stay within a breed for that long and be as passionate or driven within it as you have been without coming away with certain knowledges. I'm curious how much homework or knowledge have you tried to accrue over the years within the breed of Brittany? Because there's a few breeds within the upland space and gun dogs particularly that just they have a rich tradition, you know, for, you know, the, the average person is probably going to think of setter, English pointer, maybe your German short hairs. And then Brittany's right there amongst them. You know, I'm going to say they're top four or five easily within the gun dog space. So how much have you studied the history of the Brittany uh, as you've kind of stayed within the breed for, for so many decades now? Well, Having a Brittany this long is kind of hard not to get some history and background of it. Um, and it's easy. You Google it, you read it. And I've I've gathered information over the years. You know, you go to field trials. I, I've only done a couple of field trials with my dogs, but I've I've gone to them. You speak to people. I've hunt tested a couple of dogs. I uh, Oak and Cody were senior hunters. And that was prior to me getting a NAVDA. And I just concentrated my training and testing efforts within the NAVDA system. But if you're around the dog people, breed the breed that you have or the breed you're interested in, you're going to get a lot of information. You know, the Britneys, I've, I've read history going back to the 1700s in Europe, uh, Breton, France. And I guess how the Brittany came about by what I've read, and it, you could Google this stuff. I, before Google came out, I, I read, I read paper books and, and dictionaries and, and don't date yourself, so Rick. I, I am dating myself. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I was born in the late fifties. So there's, there's pretty easy to figure that out, but it was someone from England brought over a pointer, you know, took a ship over and read to some French dog that was spaniel setter. And, uh, it actually became a poacher dog. Uh, there was a litter between these two dogs where the tails were bobbed, worn bobbed, from what I read. Um, but most Britneys, their tails are bobbed. And my understanding of it over the years of every once in a while, I'll go back and research and read and just kind of refresh my memory. But the dog bobbed its tail because the dogs at that time were, were larger pointers, setters, you know, good looking tails you know, good looking body, muscle tone. The Brittany was a, you know, 30 to 40 pound dog. They're larger now. I think when they came to America, they, they started somehow breeding larger Brittany's and, but they were desired as a poacher and it was, you know, duck, squirrels, rabbit, upland game, you know, it was basically survival and they weren't as bold a looking dog, so to speak, as what the setters and pointer type dogs were. And all our dogs, I think, ended up here from the World Wars, World War One, World War Two, you know, German, French, English, Hungary, you know, all the pointing breeds, the continental breeds. Yeah. But back to the Brittany, um, it wasn't by choice. My dad's buddy got a Brittany for his two teenage sons at the time. They were a few years older than me, and I just liked the breed. There was no reason to go anywhere else. Um I can't say I got the Brittany because of the Brittany. I've kept the Brittany. But I think, honestly, I think all the upland breed dogs, 
I don't know that there's a lot of difference. You know, they say, well, this breed has this and that breed has that. I think it's more they're wearing different goats. <laughs> you know, when it comes to training, handling, certainly some dogs have different styles when you're getting into the setters, the pointers. Um, you know, they're all pointing breeds now, if that's what you're working in. Yeah. But um, I do love the Britneys, but I I don't know. I could easily be a short hair guy, a setter guy. I don't think it would matter. So back up 50 plus years ago, if if your dad's buddy buys his kids a German short hair, you might be a German short hair guy today. I would say so. You know, like I, I don't know any negatives in any breed. It's all about what do you want to do with your dog? You know, what? it's all style, you know. You said, I, I happen to have larger Britneys. I, I don't really know why. It just evolved. I didn't say, geez, I want a 50-pound male Britney. Right. And I mean, my females have been 45 pounds, and the male I have now, Spruce, who's eight, is 55 pounds. Lean, and uh, and I do duck hunt with them. I guide flooded timber hunts in Georgia at Mossy Pond, guide quail, pheasant tower shoots. So they retrieve, they land, water, solid on point. Uh, any game, you know, yeah. wild birds, grouse, woodcock, quail. So doesn't. essentially, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's why you stuck with them so long. Yeah, they work I, for I, you. I like, them. I, I like the way they look. Uh, I've always had orange Britneys. Mine are kind of more towards a red color. I've never had a liver Brit. Got nothing against them liver fans out there. I, I don't. You know, it, it's just, again, it's different coats. You know, when we go to our knob, the training days and, you know, there's a mixed bag of dog, poodle pointers, Weimariners, English setter, English pointer, GSPs, wire hair, poodle. I mean, there's all Spinonis. Yeah. People get mad if you say, Rick, you didn't mention my dog's breed <laughs> right on the podcast. There's, but, there's a million um, breeds to, to list off. We can't list them all off. You know, they have four legs, they run, they have a nose, and they stop. Yeah, supposed to stop, right? <laughs> exactly. So, well, they do hesitate. That's a stop. We refine that. All right. It's a delay. But, um, yeah, I just like the Britney. You know, like I said, I have, I have them on the larger scale. I have friends that have Britneys in the, you know, 30 to 40 pound range, male mm-hmm. and female, and all capable. I really don't know any different than having that 50 pound male and that 40 some pound female. Yeah. And I do like it. No, that 30 to 40 pound range, as you know, with me, that's kind of the sweet spot for me. Uh, I want to jump in because, you know, I don't do a whole lot of breed specific episodes. You know, it's like I get requests all the time. Can you do an episode on this? Can you do an episode on that? And it's like it it really kind of depends on who the guest is. Is there something to talk about other than just tell me about the history of the the breed, but this one kind of piqued my interest because there are a few talking points within the history of the breed that still comes up today. You know, it, it even came up at the Smith seminar when we when we got to meet in person a, a month or so ago. Is you know the first one is originally it was called the Brittany Spaniel. You know, it, do you have any idea where the spaniel came from, and also where did it go? Why was it eventually dropped? Because now it's just the Brittany. So, good question, and I I could provide some answers. And again, it's not I didn't make this up. I haven't made up or invented anything when it comes to dogs. Just information. So, there's also the French Brittany, and again, it comes from France, the island of Breton, and Apagnol means. In French, from what I gathered, it means point or set. Um, I believe when 
the Brittany came about, it was a breeding with a pointer and some type of setter and or spaniel. And I've, I've read different topics on that, different opinions on that. So the French Brittany comes in, they can be from black to liver to orange. Any black trait in a Brittany, the American Brittany does not have any black traits. Now, AKC, Navda, they're really not recognized as two separate breeds from my reading and understanding. I do think they're two different dogs. You get a little different body shape, head shape, size. Uh, I've, I've worked with Trent Brittany's hunted train. Great dog. I have no, no negative. Like I said, I have no negative for any breed. You know, it's what you desire. They're a little smaller in size and stature, weight than the American. Um, so right, right now, the American Brittany is not a Spaniel. However, that terminology came from Europe. It was a pointing dog, let's say, when it got to America. And again, the early breeding, supposedly with a pointer, with a setter and or Spaniel, the dogs were pointing and setting and or setting. But as far as the American Brittany goes, there's no black traits. They're liver and white or any form of that and orange and white. No black nose, no black coat color. And that's the American you said that has no black at all? No black traits. And again, that's that's written. Yeah, I think the AKC recognizes it as, as that also. I mean, I see all the time on like American Brittany sites are saying Brittany Spaniel. Yeah. So so AKC took the Spaniel off in 1982. So it really wasn't that long ago. No. And it, it's, at least since it's been in this country, it's always been a pointing dog. So Spaniels, by definition, are flushers. I, I'm still trying to piece together. So it, currently, you're saying that the American Brittany... It it doesn't have the word spaniel in it, but do the French still refer to it as the spaniel at all? They still it's called the French Brittany. Some have not let the spaniel go. Okay, but technically the French Brittany is a pointing dog. Yeah, and so I mean, was it up for discussion or debate throughout the history of whether it was a pointing dog or a flusher, or was it just? From, as you were talking about, you know, the creation of the breed, maybe the Spaniel worked its way in and the word just stuck. But it sounds like the breed or the do the actual dog itself has always been a pointer. That's my understanding and information. Even when, you know, we got our Britneys, my dad's buddy and, and, our, and us, it was late 60s. We were training those dogs as pointing dogs. And they were called the Britney Spaniel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went over 10 years having a Brittany Spaniel. And then one day the Spaniel left and they were American <laughs> Brittany. And I know that's, that kind of sounds silly, but that's pretty much how oh, it, it went, went down. If you weren't really researching and getting involved with it. Yeah. And, you know, the AKC is really our governing body of dog breeds in this country. You know, I mean, I think the history is real. Again, you could look it up. Uh, there is some differences I've, I've, read on depending on where you read it but again this goes back to the 1700s yeah and so you mentioned a few things the a few differences between the french britney and the american britney even just outside of the name you mentioned obviously the coat color but you also mentioned the size and then a lot of people you know the way the head is shaped you know there's a few different things that 
can highlight whether it's a French Brittany or American Brittany. Can you kind of break some of those down for us as well? So if certainly if you see the black trait, the black nose, even if it's orange coated or liver coated, that black nose will really tell tale. I think they're a little shorter and stouter in height and in length. The shape of their head, I'm going to use the word more pear-shaped, but that may not, that may be my interpretation of it, mm-hmm. my perception. And again, it's not a knock on it. I mean, I've known people with French Britneys that have had them as many years as I had, different parts of the country, and they they look at it that they're not the same dog. Yeah. I would almost describe it, at least from my perspective, instead of pear-shaped, it's like I almost say that the French Britneys are almost blocky heads. And, I'll go with that. And, yeah. and the Americans are a little bit more pointed, if that makes Not sense. As long. Yeah. Like long. Yeah. You know, you, you got to be careful what you say because people get offended or they take their stand. And, and again, I training with people with French Britneys, hunting with them around the country, you know, meeting people new. Uh, again, I, I think it's just they're two different dogs. Yeah. Now, what about personality-wise, temperament-wise? Have you seen, like, do some of them have off switches? And, I mean, of course, we're talking generalities. You know, there's as many differences within these breeds as they are amongst them, of course, as we we talk about quite often. But generally speaking, will people try and claim that maybe the French has a a bigger off switch in the house or the American Brittany, maybe they range further in the field. You know, what about their personality traits and characteristics in the field? So to be quite honest with you, I haven't been around enough of them long enough, uh, but people I know that have them, your dog is what you become together. You know, on switch, off switch. Listen, when the dog's in the house, it's time for the switch to be off. It's time to be a house dog. When a dog's in the kennel, it's time for kennel behavior. Uh, I don't like dogs barking and jumping and yelping. And I work on that through the Smith method with the chain gang and the wonder lead and the check cord, you know, in my training. I like quiet dogs. They're quiet in the truck and the crates. They're quiet in the kennel. Um, you know, well-mannered. I mean, I raised my daughter who's now 37 around my Britneys and uh, she doesn't have Britneys now. She has pit bulls, but <laughs> not sure how that evolved, but it did. And she lives right next door to me. But, um, you know, again, friends that have different breeds, their house dogs are good house dogs. You know, if, if you're, if you let your dog bark in a crate or bark in a kennel or jump on you or jump out of the crate or run out the door before you do, that's on you, not the dog or the breed. Yeah. And that's a fair point because you hear it. It's not just limited to the Brittany breed itself, but you hear this a lot with with a number of different breeds. You know, oh, field trials, they don't have an off switch inside the house. You know, this, that, this, that. And and I think, you know, while there are genetic traits within lines and breeds that make them, I guess, more disposed to shutting down in the house, what you're saying is like it's really more about the nurture side of things versus nature. You know, it, it depends on how you act with them. If you're consistent in the house, you set those the structure and the boundaries and you're consistent and your family is consistent with it. You know, obviously there's going to be some that take to it easier, but you can even get some of the, the biggest, most neurotic, you know, quote unquote breeds out there 
to adapt to you within the house, but there are going to be some dogs in particular that just take to it a little bit more natural or easier. Yeah. Again, maybe I don't make enough of a thing about breed specific. Again, I love the Britneys. I don't know anything else. I don't have a desire to get anything else. Not that I wouldn't. Um, I think my dogs become what we are. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the time I put in, how I do it, the way I do it, you know, I've, I've got four dogs now. I, I think I mentioned the fifth one is coming. The pups were born today. So I'm going to be anxious to find out at the end of the day, how many uh, are born. <laughs> the females down in Delaware, a buddy of mine, we bred uh, with his female and we do have a solid line of Smith bred Britneys, not to get off track, but mm-hmm. uh, the dogs I have now go back to dogs that Delmer owned trained and trialed and uh my oak who's 13 we still have she's uh directly out of ronnie and Susanna. nice and this gentleman i, I bred to in delaware has dogs that's a kind of a different line of mine that rick and ronnie started working in their field trial days yeah so it's just conversation it's pretty neat but i'll, I'll make out of this dog what i want Right. And so let's just stick with your dogs, for example. You know, as you said, that you like the orange and white. It's you you have your American Britneys. So let's talk about the in 50 plus years, you have to see some kind of commonality trend or trait through the dogs that you've had. Or, you know, talk to me about the range, how they work with you in the field. I know that we can kind of cultivate that to some extent, but. There's also something to be said for natural ability and what these dogs actually show us. So talk to me about like the temperament over the years of these dogs that you've at least noticed by owning and handling so many different ones. So very good question. So each one of my dogs I acquired as a pup. And I think right now I've got a sixth generation of pups that I started breeding. I'm not a breeder, but I've had like three or four litters over the 50 years I have in Britney's. Um, they all have a good natural ability to scent, to point as a hesitation. And you know, we modify that point through proper training and conditioning. Um, they've been good in the house, good around people. You know, whether I'm transporting them in the truck, healing them. So tell me, it, you tip, You sound like the typical dog owner that, you know, this is my breed. I love the breed. There's nothing wrong with it. Tell me something that you think or you've noticed that you is a quote unquote shortcoming. You know, there's n- every breed has has a downfall, not even a downfall, but a challenge. You know, something that the breed as a whole is trying to improve, especially like lines and kennels specifically. They're trying to improve their line. Is there something within the Brittany uh, breed that you would say, you know, over the years you've seen get better or you've seen decline that you wish would come back? You know, have you noticed anything like that? So I really never got into field trial game. And that's really, I think, what made the Brittany. And it was probably back in Delmer Smith's time. Then Rick Smith, you know, they became, you know, world-renowned trainers with their seminars and certainly both are in the field trial hall of fame, the Brittany hall of fame down at the bird dog museum in grand junction, Tennessee. Uh, I don't know if the field trial world is as strong. You know, they ran dogs on wild birds. 
and it wasn't just Britneys. They they were running different breeds, but they just seemed how they got into Britney. It just seemed to work for them. Mm -hmm. I I don't know how strong field trial game is today. You know, there's hunt tests, AKC hunt tests. You, know, you see a lot of good dogs coming out of that. Master hunters, the knob of the world, utility prize ones, uh, versatile champions. I, I'm happy with the dogs. You know, yeah. you'd love to get that dog that's you know out of the box, so to speak. You don't have to train much. Like my three-year-old female Fern, I'm training her for a utility test in August, and she's doesn't seem to be adapting to the water work with the duck search and even the duck retrieve as well as you know her aunt and uncle and her grandma and grandpa so yeah. um again is that the breed or is that just this particular dog yeah, i took four dogs to the invitation i have three vcs so the dogs definitely can do it and i didn't know what i was doing when i started training for that stuff it all evolved i learned as i went the dogs worked with me they probably did a better job than i did <laughs> that's true for a lot of us <laughs> you know yeah and you know guiding hunting around the country it's you know i'd rather be with the dogs than working you know in oh, my yeah. trade of being a plumber oh i i think all of us would agree with that we'd rather be with the dogs and out there working for for somebody else for sure so I'm curious, uh, circling back to how many seminars you've been to, and you know, obviously, you you know, s one of the big takeaways with you is you believe that these dogs kind of become who we are, who we want them. You know, we all have the dog that we deserve to have. In other words, like we've we've built the dog that we currently have. Take ownership in it. With you going to the seminars as as frequently as you have. What's one of the big takeaways or one of the more common issues, challenges that you see the average dog owner having, regardless of breed, whether it's a Brittany or fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. Becoming a good handler. Learning. Again, I, whatever methods or systems are out there, I think it's on us as dog owners and handlers to really know and learn as much as we can to apply it to the dog. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what do you want out of your dog? I think it just comes down. People don't have enough time. They don't make enough time. Yeah. But you, I think you almost need to be a student of training your dog before you train a dog. Learn yeah. as much as you can. Yeah. Get around people. Who, listen, if somebody knows a little more than you, you know, you're going to kind of take to that. Now, maybe they don't know as much as you think. Yeah. Then there's another person, you know, it's, uh, you know, I train with kids, males, females, you know, if, if you can learn and apply it, your dog will benefit from it. Mm -hmm. I think they'll do anything you want. Yeah. It's just a matter of spending the time knowing how to actually break it down. You know, where, how do you advise people that, they hear all the time, and I get asked I, on a weekly basis, you know, the, we say, learn everything, read all the books, watch all the videos. And so I'm constantly getting asked, you know, what do, we, what do I read? What do I do before going out there? Where do you draw the line between consuming and educating yourself and actually putting it into practice out in the field? Because that's a different thing. You can sit here and read all the books you want, but unless you actually go out there and 
do it or try it with your actual dog, you know, you're, you're not really putting it into practice. So that could confuse the heck out of you. Exactly. I think you might be able to get to a point where you obtain too much different information. Because remember, you have to apply it to the dog in a way that that dog can understand it. And you can't just say it. You have to show it. You know, the Smith method is, you know, they title it the silent command system. And I, I really don't talk to the dog. Yeah. You know, I, I apply it. I show it. I read them. Uh, it's amazing what they can understand just by consistent action. And let's elaborate on that a little bit more because this is something, you know, you, you heard it on a few recent episodes, whether that was Martha, Rick, wh- whoever, fill in the blanks, you know, especially on the Rick episode, we touched on it to where there's common threads between all these trainers and books and methods. And so many of them revolve around keeping our mouths shut <laughs> and it's against human nature. And so it's something that I've really been focused in on, on my own training sessions through, uh, every single day is keeping my mouth shut. And I'm noticing the more I focus on it to where, again, I've received compliments from a lot of people about how quiet I stay in the field with my dogs, but I'm noticing I speak a lot more than what I really thought I did. Where, you know, when you, when we talk about training silent or teaching silent or being in the field and being silent, is that really, truly a thousand percent quiet? Like you're not saying anything? If you can condition your dog, again, I'm going to stay with the Smith method because it's what I've been doing, learning. I like it. If you truly stay quiet and you can condition your dog to point, stand there till you release it on the retrieve. Now, if the dog's not near you, you pretty much got to give a hand signal or a voice command, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to talk. You know, when I'm guiding, I, I talk because I want to make sure that the clients, the hunters are, are in the game, in the mix, you know, just staying focused, staying safe. You know, I, I'll say things to the dog. I'll give a hand signal to have a dog go left. <laughs> I'm giving away secrets. The dog's going left anyway. <laughs> you know, you kind of just yeah. want to keep everybody involved and having a good time. Make yourself look good. You know, nobody wants to look bad. <laughs> you know, if you train your dog properly, condition that dog, you become a team working together. Your dog won't disappoint you. Yeah. And I think you said something in that to where, you know, if your dog can't see you or something like that, you have to do you know, maybe a verbal command or something like that, a hand signal. Uh, I think that's where a lot of people get confused is like, you know, if you tell somebody to be silent, train silent, they take that to where the dog's out of sight and they're not saying anything, even though it, you know, it deserves a recall or, you know, hey, we're going over in this direction, come with me or whatever, you know, trying to figure out. And, and I think it goes back to what we were just talking about the difference between learning how to do this or coming up with a plan and actually putting it into practice out in the field. So it's not like you're you're not going to get shocked by a collar or hit with a collar because you say a word to your dog by any means. But I think the rule of thumb is be, you know, especially when you're teaching the dog, 
be as quiet as possible and let the actions and and choices by the dog actually teach them. I think a lot of the reason we verbalize, again, we're human beings, we're social creatures. You need to be confident with your dog. If you know and you're confident your dog can do its job in the field, in the woods, in the duck swamp, there's really not a lot you have to say. You know, when we test Nick, we really can't do or say much to the dog. You know, there's no e-collars. So that's really probably for me how I learned to become confident with my dog. You know, you can't talk. You know, it's right. very minimal the words you can say. And if you're going to talk to your dog, make your words very specific and limit them. You don't have to speak sentences to your dog. You know, come here, sit, stay. Now, if someone said that to you, you'd be like, all right, what do you want me to do first? <laughs> and, and I've seen this. And I, I was that guy. There may be days I'm that guy, you know. But, you know, use one word for your recall, one word for your retrieve. Your heel is your heel. Sit. Whoa. You know, one word. A lot of people also say the dog's name, then give a command. Well, in the retriever world, when we get into the invitational stuff with Navda, the dog's name is its release. So, you know, it happened to me down in Georgia when I got handed a Labrador to be a flusher for me. And great, great trained dog. Heal and just say the dog's name. Well, I was saying the dog's name and then saying heal. Wow. And I know better, but I, I really never worked with a lab with my pointers. You know, someone else always handled, handled a flushing retriever dog. Uh, it was great. It was safe. The dog was well-trained. You know, it's, Pond Retrievers is quite well-known around the country for their training and their testing. So, you know, the words really do matter when the dogs don't want to understand those words. <laughs> right. You know, dogs, they really don't speak English. They don't count. They understand verbiage. They understand our tone. Our body posture speaks really loud to a dog you know don't get angry delmer says if you're going to get angry don't train mm -hmm. and it's hard not to get angry you know but when, when you get to that point where you're not happy with your dog and you're starting to feel some type of emotion stop just take a break yeah and that's not my doing that comes from delmer rick ronnie and i had the pleasure of being around delmer maybe a handful of times over the years I mean, there was a time when I didn't really know who the Smiths were or who Delmer was. Yeah. I actually got to spend a day with Delmer when I went out to pick up my pup Oak for Ronnie. And he gave me a tour of all their field trial grounds and took me to the Will Rogers Rodeo, bought me lunch. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was something. Nice. So you got to have a lunch date with Delmar. Yeah. You know, he just showed up at Ronnie's kennel one day and he was looking at the pedigree of my dogs, recognized some. As I said earlier, I think dogs he owned and trialed, and yeah, uh, yeah, let's take a ride. So it was it was it was a rewarding experience that you you would have never thought about doing. For sure, for sure. Well, cir circling back to not training with anger or not even training with emotion, I want to talk about the alternative to where some people we always hear don't train when you're getting angry or frustrated. But also, there's an element to this. Tell me if you, you can tell me if you agree or disagree to where I think people train with just 
overall too much emotion in general. And like they can train with too much happiness almost to where it's just like, you know, you can kind of go overboard and it'll throw the dog off in the uh, in the training session as well. There's something to be said for that even keel consistent. And, and especially I think of it in terms of it's hard to match your level of emotion day-to-day, session-to-session. So if I'm working the dog today and I'm working at high energy, I want to keep that energy up and everything, but I'm just not feeling that energy the next day, even if I fake it, those dogs can tell. So it's going to be hard to keep it as consistent on a day-to-day basis if you're trying to train with high energy. And that's why I think keeping that steady level baseline, it's kind of like the when people talk about clickers, you're taking the emotion out of it. A click is a click no matter who's hitting it, right? You know, it, have you seen that uh, at all in these seminars as you see all these people from all across the country with all the different breeds to where maybe sometimes it's not that they're training with anger or frustration, but maybe they're just they're just too amped up out there and they just need to kind of chill out a bit. No doubt. Pretty much everything you said is correct. So what I realized early on in the seminars, so I went to seminars when I really didn't have a dog I was training. And there's never a finished dog, but you know, I wasn't training for any test. I The dogs were hunting. You know, I was confident with them. So I was just watching and handling other people and dogs. It would you go to a seminar and, you know, it's about your dog. It's about your dog. If there's 10, 15, 20 dogs there, you will learn something from every one of those dogs. And you can almost become judgmental of the handlers. If you can take <laughs> your dog out of it, sit back and watch and listen, listen to Rick or Ronnie or Susanna. And if you could just forget that you even have a dog. And just really listen and pay attention. I tell people, don't never take your eyes off your dog. Every every moment that dog is saying or doing something, except when it's sleeping. Right. You know, and, and it all sounds nice, but it's it's just like I didn't study this. You know, I had a full-time job, family, I had a life, I socialized. But um, you know, you go to a training day at Navda and you could be with seven, eight people in a group and there could be 10, 12 dogs and you get to watch all this stuff, you know, and it's, you're going to learn more from other dogs and other people in that scenario than just paying attention to your dog. And well, you can't just go to one Smith seminar. You can't do it because you know, it's, it's a lot of information at their foundation seminar. Um, you really do need to go to more. Yeah. And you need help doing it. Someone around you, you know, um, a local trainer. If, you know, again, I use the Smith method. I know it. I like it. There's a lot of other ways out there, or maybe not a lot of ways. Like yeah. I said, they're a dog. Yeah. And you said something that's really key in that, and and this is this can be applied to fill in the blank organization. It doesn't matter whether it's a test, trial, training day, clinic, seminar, whatever, fill in the blank. It's true across the board that you're going to learn by watching and helping with everybody else's dogs and all the other handlers more so than just your own. And, you know, that's something to where, 
you know, when I was attending the NAVDA training days in my area a little bit more consistent than what I've had here recently is I, you get out what you put into it, right? And if you go with your dog and you just go to train your dog, well, your your involvement's going to be done in 10 or 15 minutes. But if you go and you're helping everybody and you're planting birds and you're asking questions and you and you're what can I do to help? You know, what do you need? You can help, you know, 15 to 20 dogs in that one training day, and it's not only just helping them, but it's helping yourself. You know, you it, it's selfishly being greedy is, is kind of how I call it is you're after the knowledge. And the best way to gain that knowledge is to buy by seeing people interact with their dogs out in the field. And you're going to learn just as much by someone else's dog than you would with your own. And I could argue that you're going to learn even more because how many people have you seen when their dog is in the field, they put on blinders and they don't see anything outside of their own dog. And they have no idea what's going on around them, what may have caused this, may have caused that. There's a, there's a lot to be said for the fact that you you helping train someone else's dog will make you a better handler overall as opposed to just focusing on your one dog. 100% right, Nick. When, when you're with your dog, there's emotion. You can't help it. Yeah, I, I, it's I, your baby. I, <laughs> I, I haven't been able to take emotion out of it. I just try to keep, you know, my knowledge and awareness up front. When you're working with another dog, watching someone work with their dog, you have no emotion in it. And you may not even know what that person did with that dog the week, the month, the year before, unless you're training with them with some consistency. But if you're if you're hanging out at your vehicle with your dog in an the training day, I'm going to say nah because that's my training. Yeah. Uh, you're missing out on a lot. Yeah. You, know, you could listen and watch people. You could learn what to do, maybe more so. I bet you learn what not to do more than you learn what to do. Yeah. Because there really aren't that many different ways. Well, there's not that many different things a pointing dog is doing in the field. Yeah. You know, then with Navdi, you had the water part to it and water retrieve. And if you decide to hand signal train, but let's just stick with field dogs because that's basically, you know, most of what we're doing with a pointing dog. Um, you're right on, you know, take the emotion out of it, but have that knowledge. You know, when you're around Rick and Ronnie, Susanna, they know what that dog's going to do before it does it. They'll, they could see a dog when, when someone's walking it in to put it on a chain gang, when they're healing it, when they're check cording it, when they're, when they're pulling it out of the crate, off the truck of the tailgate or out of your SUV, they, they got a pretty good idea by watching within seconds or minutes what, what that dog's going to do for the next day or two. Yeah. I mean, I think you witnessed it at, at Rick's seminar with uh, Webfoot. Yeah, no, I, I I did. I watched it trans transpire right in front of my eyes. Uh, getting to interview him afterwards, you know, I think there was a number of takeaways uh, from my conversation with Rick. But one amongst them was, you know, him talking about it doesn't matter where the dog comes from. It doesn't matter how the dog was trained. It doesn't matter how they got to this point because he's still going to go into it training it like a dog. And, and he's just going to treat it like a dog. And the, you know, something that I've been repeating since, since being around that weekend is, you know, you can treat 
a dog like a human all you want, but that dog's still going to treat you like a dog. And that's why he's able to, just in front of everybody, without knowing the dog's backstory, without knowing the handler's backstory, he's able to hit those those I don't those moments, those breakthrough moments with the individual dogs because while he doesn't know any of that back stuff or the context, he knows dogs. And that and that's how they're able to address all this stuff. And that's why every seminar is a little different. I mean, I know we didn't jump on here to talk about the seminars, but obviously with you being through so many of them, this is a main catalyst of how you've developed as a dog owner and handler on your own. Correct. But I would say to anybody that owns a dog that wants to train upland pointing dog, learn how to do it. Obtain some method, some form, some system for the dog's sake. And if you're if you get hung up somewhere or the dog's not doing something, maybe a different approach is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe go to someone else. Ask someone, you you know, if someone's got a, let's say you go to an odd the training day and there's a couple of people there and they've got versatile champions. Well, you're going to think that, you know, their dog's a good dog. They had success. They did something right. And they had to do something right because the dog didn't get there on its own. Yeah. Again, I think my dogs helped me more than I helped them in certain situations, no doubt. But I had to drive them there. Yeah. So, you know, don't be shy to ask questions. Try something different. You know, I, if I, I haven't had the time to train with many trainers, you know, like I said, when I adapted the Smith method, I just kept going to it because I learned more and more and it felt good. It felt yeah. right. Uh, and I think the dog showed me that what I was applying was helpful and it was working. Yeah. And, you know, again, I didn't mean to get off on the whole training thing, but oh, you know, no, that's no. what everybody wants. They wanted, I, I think the best dog for the average person is go out into the training field or the hunting field put that dog at the ground whether it's out of preserve your buddy invited you to if you're going out grouse hunting put that dog on the ground and just trust that that dog will not run away will not chase birds will not bust birds will stay with you it'll point doesn't have to have the best nose doesn't have the best search as long as that dog can just work with you within a managed distance and i would say most preserves and grouse hunting is you know 30 40 50 yards yeah you know that dog quartering left and right um instinctively the dogs will do some of that but you really have to apply your ability to train to have that dog understand what you wanted to do, but you have to know what you want to do. Yeah, you have to know what to expect of that dog, what it's like to be out there in the field, the woods, the swamp. You know, it's all hunting. Yeah, and it's all based off their nose, for sure. And I mean, if there's anything else that we can take away from this, is Rick Afuso. If if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it's a Brittany, if it's a Smith seminar, if it makes sense, then you're sticking with it for. For, for life, pretty much. <laughs> well, I find nothing wrong with the way I've learned this under the Smiths. Um, I'm too darn old to change stuff. But <laughs> my eyes are open and my ears are open. I'm listening and I'm watching. If there's something different or newer, um, I'm glad to train it. Also, I just want to say something about the Britneys, Nick. I did make some notes. So 
back in the years, the 60s, 70s, when field trials were going strong, and I'm going to relate it to Delmar and Rick and Ronnie, Ronnie's dad, you know, they, they were in that circuit. They were, you know, they were, they were running with English pointers, English setters, German short hairs. There was, you know, there were some pretty darn good dogs and some pretty heavy duty field trials going on around the country. But the Brittany has produced more dual champions than any breed in the field trial world that show points and titles and the field trial points and titles. And, you know, spending time with Rick, Ronnie, um, you know, these guys gave up family to, to trial and test dogs, to train dogs. It, it was some really high-end competitive stuff. And it was off horseback. Yeah. So it was some pretty good stuff. Yeah. No, I love it, man. So, it's yeah, everybody uh, should own a Brittany, Nick. Yeah, yeah, everybody go buy a Brittany now <laughs> because Rick said so. And uh, Rick, you know, I know that uh, you said that we just recently met. We just met in person, but we've we've kind of known each other for a year or two, or a little bit longer than that, via social media. Kind of tell everybody where they can find you on social media because I know that one thing that you particularly enjoy doing is helping other folks get started if they have any questions pointing them in the right direction. I know a, a few uh, mutual friends that you've kind of helped kind of, I don't know, more or less direct or give them a path through the through the field. So, you know, tell everybody where you're at on social media if you'd like to, and then we can wrap this up. So Facebook, it's Eric Afuso. Rick is a nickname. And on Instagram, it's Reservoir Brits. And, and I would be pleased to help anybody. And there's some really good quality pro trainers around this country. Yeah. And not even even outside the Smith method. Oh, yeah. now, if you're getting a dog, I'd go to a pro. In some shape or form, I'd go to a pro. Even if that's just to help them. Even if that's just you scraping kennels and mucking kennels just to, to learn. Well, go to a pro. You could do daily lessons if there's someone in your area. You could leave a dog. You could do one-on-ones. You know, these pros, it's their living. But, you know, they want to do right because if they don't do right – clients aren't coming back to them exactly and you know with social media now like this a lot of information can be found on social media word of mouth that's how it all works yeah. and the dog the dog world has some good dog people yeah 100 percent. well rick i enjoyed it I, I enjoyed getting to know you a little bit better hearing a little bit more about Brittany's and your kind of training philosophy and what you've learned so much from uh from the guys had been in it for even longer than both of us combined but uh you know i really enjoyed it and uh listeners stick around for the outro rick we'll catch up soon man all right and there's Brittany's on the ground anybody interested <laughs> reach out to rick he'll point you in the right direction thanks nick good luck yes sir thank you All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rick Afuso presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, as well as Upland Gun Company. You know, when when you kind of get into this world, you're always told one of the first things that people are quick to advise you on to help you get started is to find a, a quote unquote mentor. And uh, it's easier said than done. You know, you can find somebody that's willing to give you advice, but finding people that are willing to take the time and really give you some quality advice, that's a little bit more difficult than what it sounds like when everybody's just, oh, go find a mentor. And 
people such as Rick Afuso, once you kind of get to see them and meet them in person, you get a sense of who they really are and what really drives them. And, and you can kind of hear it in the voice throughout this episode that he is just truly passionate about dogs as well as people. And that's what drives him to keep learning. As you guys have heard how many seminars, the Smith seminars that he's attended, and then just by extension, how he likes to pass on that information to other people that may be struggling or just need a, 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 a direction, a point in the right direction. You know, that goes a long way a lot of the time. And and Rick truly backs up what he preaches on this stuff. And it, it's it reminds me when I first met Rick, it was via it was actually through Facebook. We did the GDIY training camp last year up at Mark and Martha's, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it. I can't remember why, but we just didn't cross paths. But he was quick to just follow up and shoot me a message and say that you know he regretted not being able to uh, link up or, or attend the camp, but that if we ever needed anything to reach out and his door's always open. And, and that's kind of proven to be the case. Fast forward another year after we finally got to meet in person and then just throughout networking i've talked to a number of people that he i don't know if the word mentoring is correct or not but it more or less just kind of helps advise and point them in that right direction and i think the more people that we get to actually follow through on that and not and not just tell people go find a mentor but actually takes that burden or responsibility and puts it on their own shoulders to pass their information and knowledge forward, the better that the community is actually going to be. And the more, you know, you, you hear from people all the time to where maybe they don't agree that we need more hunters, but we need better quality hunters within the community. Well, the the recipe and the process is still the same for recruiting new hunters, whether that's, you know, people just not having the correct resources or information to learn how to do it, or you can take it upon yourself to try and help people the best you can with the best quality information that you can, which then turns out those quote-unquote better quality hunters for the community. Uh, Hopefully that makes sense anyway. It, it, It at least did in my head for a second there, but either way, whether you're talking about Rick or all these other people that we've recently had on the uh, podcast, one thing, a common thread amongst all of them is they never stop learning. They're always chasing more information. You know, just because you've been to 40 Smith seminars like Rick has doesn't mean that he doesn't want to go to another 40 just because he can continue to learn, continue to develop his arsenal of tools within, you know, how he wants to go about training and or hunting his dogs. And speaking of learning, if you haven't already, then by all means, please go check out our YouTube channel. The link is down in the show description and notes below. We have a a number of videos out. We don't have a giant catalog by any means, but it's slowly growing. We do have some hunt films that really takes you from step one in the rough grouse woods or in Arizona quail hunting and kind of what to look for or or be aware of. We also have conservation films such as the prairie chickens in Illinois of how the the acreage and land of actual wild prairie is essentially non-existent, at least in relation to how it was in the state of Illinois and how what that means to native prairie chickens within that state. So that's a really interesting conversation. And then the past couple of weeks, we've been doing some of these uh, uh, 
kind of a video companion, so to speak, with these podcast episodes. It started with Jordan Horak's Dummy Launcher episode and then last week's episode on the Obedience course or Challenge course, whatever you want to call it, with Jennifer Broom. Those videos are up, and there's actual training clips within those videos uh, that, that touches on what the guests actually speak on within the episode. And I can't tell you exactly how many of these type of episodes I'm going to be putting out there because it is time consuming and the the topic really has to kind of fit the... I don't know, fit, fit the program, so to speak, fit the template. and uh, But also now, right now, if you go to our YouTube channel, there's a new video up on gear, just talking about how I go about setting up my hunting vest as well as my vest in the off-season when I'm training, what I carry, how it's set up, the accessories and all that stuff. So if, there, if there's any interest in any of that stuff that I just talked about, which you know, I get I get a fair amount of questions and messages from listeners throughout the week, and these are all topics and discussions that I'm constantly having with you people. So, uh, by all means, if you have any interest in it, please go to our YouTube channel, hit subscribe, and let me know what you think on the videos because it is time consuming. It is self taught. I'm doing it by myself on you know the editing and and the shooting. I've had some buddies help me out and stuff like that, but. Truly, it's it's just me just kind of figuring it out from a video to video basis. So I'm still just kind of figuring out the style and the workflow, so to speak. But I can't do any of this without the support of Patreon patrons. So if you really enjoy the content and you find any value in whichever format of uh, information that you take in, whether that is video, whether that is uh, podcast, or maybe you like the bonus content on Patreon, then by all means, please sign up. It's patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. There's a bunch of bonus content up there uh, that, you know, bonus episodes, monthly bonus episodes with Nick Larson from the Birdshot podcast, uh, Zoom Rooms. We just finished one up last week with uh, photography and how to edit in the field with your dogs, uh, a lot of emphasis on iPhone pictures and stuff like that that we did with Nate Akey. Uh, a l- lot of creative stuff, giveaways for sure. You know, Onyx Hunt memberships. We're going to be doing a monthly giveaway. Uh, fellow listener Car- Carson uh, Fillin offered up some uh, custom leather work stuff like that that we're going to be offering up for Patreon as the occasional giveaway. So, with all that being said, I appreciate you guys tuning in. I hope you got something out of this conversation. Please hit subscribe so that you check out next week's episode. And the biggest thing that you can do to help out the podcast is just to share it. Share it via social media. Share it directly via text message or with whoever, uh, a friend, family that you think that might gain something from the topics that we cover. And again, I'm going to wrap this up. I appreciate everybody for hitting download and checking us out. It means the world to me. And we'll check back on the next episode of GDIY. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Happy hunting. 
Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.